was watching Adam. I've been watching the sermon and, and the series, and I noticed he's got his table and his iPad, and he walks around. He's really comfortable. And You might not get all that with me. You might have me right here at the stand. But uh, I'm just really honored to be here. As Andrew said, we go way back with Family Church. Uh, Adam and I go way back. I was just reflecting on how 30 years ago we were downstairs in this building at a lock-in. Uh, and so it's always full circle weird to me to be back here. I'm just really honored. Uh, and also, as Andrew said, my lovely family is here. My wife, Olivia, and our sons, Gabriel, Luke, and Asher, we're all here. We're honored to be here. We love you guys. And um, I'm just really happy to be here. Now, we don't get to come here very much. We go to Vineyard Church of Delaware County, which is in Sunbury. Uh, and we live in Lewis Center, so it's a long drive. We don't get to slip away very much. We're really plugged into that church. But when we do slip away, we love to slip away here. So thanks for having us. We're really honored. And I'm really honored to get plugged into Adam's sermon series, Endgame, on the life of Joseph. I will say, every time I hear Endgame or I say it, I feel like there should be an announcer going, Endgame, you know, with like strobe lights and stuff. It's such a cool sermon series title. And it's really accurate. It's really appropriate. It's cool and it really, it, it's really a good one. Because Joseph really did play the game with the end in mind. In fact, outside of Jesus who always lived like a son, who always played the game with the end in mind. I can't think of a better example than Joseph in the scriptures. And so I know a lot of you have already shared with Pastor Adam that this sermon series has meant a lot to you. Uh, it's really spoken to you. Maybe how Joseph was betrayed or accused or forgotten. Um, or maybe just how Joseph's life was. I, that's kind of where I'm at. Oh, I can't hit my chest there, sorry. Uh, but that's kind of how I look at my life. I feel like it, it can relate to Joseph's life really high highs and really low lows, kind of back to back. I'm kind of a, I'm a sound guy, a music guy, so I think of like a sound wave, like really high, really good, and really miserable right after one another. And maybe you can relate to that. I was reflecting on, uh, my career's taking a couple weird left turns lately, but I was reflecting on how my career started, and it's a, it's a you'll never believe it, amazing story, right? So, so Joseph's Joseph's life was, you'll never believe it amazing, followed by you'll never believe it miserable, and back to back. And sometimes I feel like my life's like that. When my career was started, I uh, was newly married. I just finished college with a not-so-marketable degree. Uh, and my lovely wife still had one more year of school. She was in Kentucky, and so we lived in Kentucky, and I was pretty much interviewing for any job I could get, anybody that would take me. I interviewed for everything. Uh, and so I got a call from a technology company, and they said, well, what do you know about this particular server operating system? And I said, well, not much, to be honest, but I'm a really fast learner. If you tell me what books to buy, I'll buy them, and I'll come to work ready to go. And they actually took me up on it. They said, okay, buy this one and this one and this one. And so I did. And a week later, I was knee-deep in the dot-com boom of the late 1990s. Everything you read about, that's, that was my job. So the first couple weeks, I was a server guy, and then a database guy, and then a storage guy, and then a code development guy, uh, and then internet production, all these things that, uh, that people go to school for years and years to do, I got to do in about a six-month period. And so when Olivia graduated from college and we moved up to Columbus, as was our plan, I was able to go into big banks and climb the ladder super quickly, way quicker than if I'd have you know, gone to school for those disciplines. And so even now, I'll tell that story to people with a little more detail, and they'll say, wow, I can't believe it. That's a can't-believe-it amazing story. And so I've got a couple of those. Sometimes I feel like I have more of the other ones that can't believe it, miserable stories. Uh, whoa, was that me? Oh, that's me looking down. Sorry, Facebook Live. Uh, 
Also, I'm hoping Facebook Live shaves off some of the pounds. I don't think it will. I'll probably look at it and go, oh, no. As I'm eating my donut, I'll be like, oh. Uh, so, so can't believe it, miserable stories. And uh, I was reflecting on that a couple years ago. I'm flipping a house with a buddy. We're on the job site. I'm stepping down to where a step used to be, but we had removed the step, and there was only rebar left. And I twisted my ankle. And instead of breaking it, I tore every tendon and ligament there was, which you would think would be the can't believe it part, right? But it wasn't. Uh, <laughs> all right. You know what's happening? I'm looking down when I laugh. So I'll just laugh like this. <laughs> I'll just chuckle like this. So, so anyway, we're flipping the house. I take the step. I twist my ankle. It seems like things are getting better. I go to the surgeon. The surgeon says, well, we're not going to have to work on it. You're, it's going to be okay. Start walking on it. Start walking on it tonight. Put a little bit of pressure on it. So I do. Put a little pressure on it. I start walking around. It's like a big deal. My family's like, we're excited. We get a pizza because dad's walking again. <laughs> we're all excited about it. And then uh, I start feeling a pain in my chest. Well, the next day I'm in the hospital. I have a blood clot. It was in my legs. Multiple blood clots. Went to my lungs. Uh, and I'm in the hospital. And the ER had diagnosed it. And the, I remember the ER doctor saying, good luck. Because they were getting ready for me to, they were ambulancing me to a different hospital, had more of a trauma, trauma ward, and I thought, that's a really weird good luck. You know, you've always heard good luck's like, good luck on your driving exam, good luck on your SATs, right? Good luck, good luck in your job interview. But this good luck sounded really different. And after reflecting, I realized it was a good luck, I hope you live. Good luck, I hope you survive this. And so, I, I can't believe it. You'll never believe it. Miserable story. And for those of you who know my lovely wife, she's got more stories than that. She's had multiple brushes with death. And so I don't know why that is, but it seems like we Allens, we just we roll that way. Really high highs, really low lows, back to back. And maybe you relate that way. Or maybe you're on the other side of it. Maybe, maybe you're the sound wave that ripples along. And you look at the story of Joseph and say, oh, thank you, Lord. Thank you that I, I don't experience those crazy extremes. Or maybe you... Look at the theme of Joseph's life and think, wow, God is faithful. He is so faithful. Or God is amazing. There's nothing, you know, nothing is impossible with God. There's a million themes through the life of Joseph that we can all relate to. And I know that we've all been able to relate to the sermon series so far. I think today's not going to be any different, I hope. I think we'll all be able to relate to this one. But before we get into it, let's just recap the sermon series so far. For those of you who might not have heard it. In week one, Adam talked about how Joseph was kind of a cocky 17-year-old kid telling this dream to his brothers about how basically they would somehow be subservient to him. They were bitterly jealous, and they sold him into slavery. And so Joseph was betrayed. So Adam has these cool catchphrases. So Joseph woke up a son and went to bed a slave. I thought that was super cool. And then in week two, Adam covered, on how, uh, covered about how Joseph was assigned to Potiphar's house. Uh, he was a slave, but he was put in charge uh, of Potiphar's house, and through no fault of his own, he was falsely accused of taking advantage of Potiphar's wife. She kept making advances. He kept saying, no, I would never do that. He gets falsely accused anyway, and uh, Potiphar throws him in prison. So he was accused. Joseph woke up in charge and went to bed in chains. Now today we're going to cover how Joseph went from interpreting some dreams for some people in Pharaoh's royal court to then interpreting dreams for Pharaoh himself to then being in second in charge of all of Egypt. 
But today we're going to look at how Joseph was forgotten. This phrase is not nearly as catchy or fun. Joseph woke up waiting, and he went to bed waiting. So we're going to talk about that. So let's just invite God's presence, and then we're going to get into the text together. Lord Jesus, I just pray that you would give me the right words, keep me on script when I'm supposed to be, and take me off when I'm supposed to be. Lord, would you speak through me? Would you meet each person here where they're at? Would you speak to each heart here? Lord, we say we love you and we need you. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so we're actually going to read a lot of text today, and I feel bad for Bill because I showed up with a ton of slide content, and I don't know if his fingers are going to be fast enough to keep up, and I'm going to read this text pretty quickly. I'm just going to insert a couple things parenthetically, but if you have a Bible or a phone Bible or an iPad Bible or whatever, feel free to read along. We're going to try and have it on the screens, but don't hold Bill to it. It's not his fault. It's my fault. And we're going to start, we're going to read all of Genesis 40, the whole chapter, and then a chunk of Genesis 41. Here we go. Sometime later, the cupbearer and the baker of the king of Egypt offended their master, the king of Egypt. Pharaoh was angry with his two officials, the chief cupbearer and the chief baker, and he put them in custody in the house of the captain of the guard in the same prison where Joseph was confined. The captain of the guard assigned them to Joseph, and he attended them. After they'd been in custody for some time, each of the two men, the cupbearer and the baker of the king of Egypt, who were being held in prison, had a dream the same night, and each dream had a meaning of its own. When Joseph came to them the next morning, he saw that they were dejected. They were sad. So he asked Pharaoh's officials who were in custody with him in his master's house, why do you look so sad today? We both had dreams, they answered, but there's no one to interpret them. Then Joseph said to them, do not interpretations belong to God? Tell me your dreams. So the chief cupbearer told Joseph his dream. He said to him, In my dream I saw a vine in front of me, and on the vine were three branches. As soon as it budded, it blossomed, and its clusters ripened into grapes. Pharaoh's cup was in my hand, and I took the grapes, squeezed them into Pharaoh's cup, and put the cup in his hand. Well, this is what it means, Joseph said to him. The three branches are three days. Within three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head and restore you to your position, and you will put Pharaoh's cup in his hand, just as you used to do when you were his cupbearer. But when all goes well with you, remember me and show me kindness. Mention me to Pharaoh and get me out of this prison. I was forcibly carried off from the land of the Hebrews, and even here I've done nothing to deserve being put in a dungeon. When the chief baker saw that Joseph had, been given, uh, Joseph had given the cupbearer a favorable interpretation, he said, me too, do me, do me. I too had a dream. On my head were three baskets of bread. In the top basket were all kinds of baked goods for Pharaoh, but the birds were eating them out of the basket on my head. Well, this is what it means, Joseph said. The three baskets are three days. So imagine you're the baker. You're like, okay, three days. Within three days, Pharaoh will lift off your head and impale your body on a pole, and the birds will eat away your flesh. Now the third day, so think about that. tells one guy, Pharaoh will lift up your head. Pharaoh will lift off your head. Now the third day was Pharaoh's birthday, and he gave a feast for all his officials. He lifted up the heads of the chief cupbearer and the chief baker in the presence of his officials. He restored the chief cupbearer to his position so that he once again put the cup into Pharaoh's hand, but he impaled the chief baker, just as Joseph had said to them in his interpretation. The chief cupbearer, however, did not remember Joseph. He forgot him. Now let's read in 41. When two full years had passed... This is two full years after those dreams. Pharaoh had a dream. 
He was standing by the Nile, when out of the river there came up seven cows, sleek and fat, and they grazed among the reeds. After them, seven other cows, ugly and gaunt, came up out of the Nile and stood beside those on the riverbank. And the cows that were ugly and gaunt ate up the seven sleek, fat cows, and then Pharaoh woke up. Then he fell asleep again, had a second dream. Seven heads of grain, healthy and good, were growing on a single stalk. After them, seven other heads of grain sprouted, thin and scorched by the east wind. The thin heads of grain swallowed up the seven healthy full heads. Then Pharaoh woke up. It had been a dream. In the morning, his mind was troubled, so he sent for all the magicians and wise men of Egypt. Pharaoh told them his dreams, but no one could interpret them for him. Then the chief cupbearer said to Pharaoh, Oh, my bad. Today I'm reminded of my shortcomings. Pharaoh was once angry with his servants, and he imprisoned me and the chief baker in the house of the captain of the guard. Each of us had a dream the same night, and each dream had a meaning of its own. Now a young Hebrew was there with us, a servant of the captain of the guard. We told him our dreams and he interpreted them for us, giving each man the interpretation of his dream. And things turned out exactly as he interpreted them to us. I was restored to my position and the other man was impaled. So Pharaoh sent for Joseph. We'll stop there and I'll paraphrase from here. But Joseph interprets Pharaoh's dreams and basically says, Pharaoh, the two dreams you had, they're the same dream. Uh, you got it twice because God's decided this is going to happen that Egypt is going to experience seven years of plenty and then seven years of famine. And Pharaoh, you need to get ready for this. And this is pretty rare in ancient Egypt. For those of you who might know, on the Nile, the Nile would regularly flood and it was super fertile. So famines were not like, oh, there's a famine this year. They were very, very rare. And so a seven-year famine would be something that takes a considerable amount of preparation. So Joseph says, Pharaoh, you need to get somebody in charge of it. And Pharaoh says, hey, no better guy than you, Joseph. Obviously, you hear from God like nobody else, and Joseph gets appointed and put in charge of that. So, spoiler alert, Joseph ends up at Pharaoh's right hand, second in command of all of Egypt. Pharaoh says, only in regards to my being Pharaoh, I mean, I'm the only guy that's above you. You can do anything you want. You're in charge of everything. For those of us who have heard that story, that's why we love it, right? We love that Joseph went from son to slave to the king's right hand. We love that as Adam has been sharing, Joseph never stopped living like a son, a son of God. We love that the scriptures say the Lord was with Joseph. Right? The Lord, was, uh, the Lord showed favor to Joseph. Everything Joseph touches turns to gold. We love that. On the other side of things, we love phrases like sometime later, as Genesis 40 starts, because then we don't have to think about how long that really was. The Bible doesn't map out all the years of Joseph's life, but we read in Genesis 41:46, Joseph was 30 years old when he entered the service of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. So that's 13 years from Joseph's dreams as a kid at 17, which we'll call point A, to his time of interpreting Pharaoh's dream and becoming in charge of Egypt at age 30, point B, Joseph was either a slave or a prisoner for 43% of his life at that point. We don't think about that part, do we? I certainly don't. But the scriptures are full of waiting, and not just waiting for like some amount of time, but like an extreme, exorbitant, you got to be kidding me, amount of time. The scriptures are full of them. We don't like to read them. We like to burn past them. I do. But they're full of waiting. And that brings us to today's theme. If we're playing the end game properly, if we're really playing the end game, 
playing the game with the end in mind, we need to get ready to wait. Waiting is a significant part of playing the end game. I'm going to share something profound now that maybe none of us have thought about. We don't like to wait. That's not true. That's not profound at all. We know we don't like to wait. We hate to wait. Even when Adam was sharing his analogy about the chess game in the first couple sermons, you guys remember this? Like talking about end game as like a a chess strategy term. I like to think about two guys playing chess in the park. Do we have that picture? Get that picture, Bill? Well, anyway, it doesn't matter. The, The point is, there it is. That's the way I like to think of people playing chess. With those clocks, where it's like, move, clock, move, clock. I don't even know what the clocks do, but I just know everybody's in a hurry. Right? That's how they play chess. And look, it's so exciting. There's guys back there, like, watching. Like, oh, man, I wonder if he'll move his rook or whatever. That's the way I like to think of chess. That's the way, the way I like to think of the end game in regards to chess. We don't like to wait. And I'll tell you, we are more wise to think of this chess game as two old friends, maybe in different states, maybe in different countries, playing a chess game over a period of months or even years. You know, where maybe they both have a, a copy of the game on their chess table or on their coffee table and they'll, they'll call and, and, you know, have a conversation. Hey, move this one piece. And then maybe three months or a year goes by. But this game is being played out over a long time. And I think the reason we need to think about it that way is that we need to look at our reality and our existence the way God looks at us. Now, I think we've all had this conversation or we've all heard something somewhere where we say, oh, God is eternal. He's eternal. He's an eternal being. He's not bound by time like we're bound by time. Right? And that's true. He always was. He is. He always will be. He's not bound by time. He made time up. It's an invention. God created time like he created trees. So he's not bound by time. That's true. And every time the Lord looks at a situation, he knows the beginning, the middle, and the end, and he's known it forever. Forever back and forever forward. Right? I mean, that's a pretty wild concept. But here's the clincher. We are also eternal beings. We don't sometimes think that way. But we've got a a span on earth of maybe 120 years max. I'd love to make it to 120. But then after that, we are also eternal. We are also forever. Now, it's a different sermon, but it's important to think about where that forever is going to be spent. And the only way to spend the the proper forever is by letting Jesus take charge of our, our lives here on earth for that brief time, giving our lives over to Him. But we're eternal. We're eternal. And that means if, if God is looking at us, if He's shaping us and forming us and dealing with us, we shouldn't be surprised that that could happen for very long seasons. We shouldn't be surprised if we are dealing with something our entire earthly life. Because it's really not that long a time. Right? It's really not. It seems like it is to us, but it's really not. So, that's the bad news. We're going to wait. We know we're going to wait. So what do we do while we're waiting? I propose three things. The first point is, while we are waiting, we can't give up. We mustn't give up. God's promises are always going to come true. Always, always. Without fail. And we have to hold on to God's promises. Now, Adam encouraged us to write down God's promises, uh, some of God's promises. I think that's a great practice. Uh, I think that's a great thing to do. I've done that. I want to try something this morning. Let's all do something together. So this is our our group activity time. Let's open one of our hands. You hold out your hand. All right, now let's all imagine 
that we're putting into our hand a promise that God has given us. Either through the Scriptures or something you feel like God has told you, something that you're still waiting on. Any promise that you feel like the Lord has given you. Or any promise you love in the Scriptures. Ready? Okay, now close it up and make a fist. That is what we're supposed to do. We're supposed to hold it tight. And Joseph, it might have seemed like he had gotten it a little bit wrong. I mean, if I'm Joseph, and I'm now in prison, first I was a slave, now I'm a slave and a prisoner, and I had these dreams back when I was 17 that, oh, my, you know, my family's going to somehow be subservient to me. That would seem really far away to me. I would have probably let that one go. I would think, my, my record as a dream interpreter is decent. So when the cupbearer and the baker come to me, I would say, well, I'm pretty good at this. I'm okay. I got some weird ones from when I was 17 that don't look like they're going to happen. But let me, let me have a shot at your dreams. But what did he do? He didn't do that. To the cupbearer and the baker, he quickly said, well, don't dreams belong to the Lord? Don't the interpretations belong to the Lord? Tell me your dream. I'll tell you. He was holding on to the dreams that he'd been given, to the gifts that he'd been given as a dream interpreter. He was holding on to those promises. And that's part of why Adam was saying he continued to live like a son. Always had his eyes on the prize. Always was going after the end game. Now, taking stock of where you are isn't bad. And Joseph does that. You know, especially when you're in the middle of a you'll never believe it miserable story. It's okay to take stock. There's nothing wrong with taking stock. But this is where we can really, we can take a left turn accidentally. See what Joseph says here in verse 14, chapter 40, 14. But when all goes well with you, remember me and show me kindness. Mention me to Pharaoh and get me out of this prison. I was forcibly carried off from the land of the Hebrews, and even here I've done nothing to deserve being put in a dungeon. So let me take a second here and just kind of explain, go with me in your mind's eye about where this prison actually is. The, uh, so Pharaoh had his kind of royal court and throne area, and then Potiphar had, he was kind of in charge of what we might think of like a military complex. So you had Potiphar's house. He's the captain of the guard. And then there's maybe some administrative buildings. And then there's the king's prison, which is kind of Potiphar's in his backyard, in his authority. So imagine kind of a complex. The king's prison had a bunch of different purposes. Sometimes if Pharaoh was mad at people, like he was mad at his chief cupbearer and his, and his baker. And by the way, those guys are members of, of Pharaoh's royal court. They're not what we would think about. They're not just like his servers. They're in charge. The cupbearer is in charge of all the wine production, all the vineyards, all the people. And the chief baker is likely in charge of everything Pharaoh eats and all the, the food supply and everything else. These are big potatoes. They just don't sound like it to us. But they're in Pharaoh's royal court. But when Pharaoh got irritated, he could throw them into his little prison. But his prison wasn't just like a country club because he could also put enemy kings in there and torture them. This was kind of like, Pharaoh, I put people in prison who I, you know, the people I choose go there. And so there really was a dungeon, and it's not a, it's not a figure of speech when Joseph says, I, I've deserved nothing to be put in this dungeon. And sometimes I get whining, and I'll say, oh, this, this is a, you know, I'll exaggerate. Joseph's not doing that. He's not saying, this is a dungeon. He's literally in a dungeon. And he's taking stock. That same word for dungeon, ironically, in the Hebrew, is the same word for cistern. When Joseph was thrown into a cistern by his brothers, this is probably really close to his mind. He's probably reminded of the bad deal he's been given ever since he was 17. I wonder what Joseph is thinking also in regards to Potiphar. There's an irony in here that we often read past. Did you remember in 40 as we were reading, he kept hearing captain of the guard, captain of the guard. That's Potiphar. 
Potiphar's still in this story. And Potiphar is actually still assigning people in Joseph's charge. It was Potiphar who assigned the cupbearer and the baker to be watched by Joseph. So you've got to wonder, maybe Potiphar wised up. Maybe he realized that his wife wasn't telling the truth. Maybe he found out. Maybe he realizes now, but for the sake of his family's honor, he can't just let Joseph out of prison, so he'll just make Joseph in charge in prison. Now, some of that's conjecture, but maybe it's the best that Potiphar can do to keep that family honor intact. And we know that Joseph is really in a dungeon. He really is taking stock of where he's at. I'm not saying that he's complaining, but I'm saying that he has a full understanding of the position he's been put in. And that's important for us to remember, church, when we, when we think about situations that we're in, it's okay to take stock. It's okay to, to have a full understanding of where we are. I fully and heartily disagree, as does Adam, with teaching that says, don't worry about your circumstances. Don't even think about them because heaven's going to be great. I've heard teaching like that, right? Don't even look around you. Just look up. There's some truth to that, but in general... It's okay to look at where we're at, to assess where we're at, to ask God, God, what are you doing where I'm at? I trust you where I'm at. And that's what Joseph did. And we grow and our faith grows when God's promises come true after we think it's already over. That's when we grow. I mean, haven't we seen this in our own lives? Our testimonies start with, well, it just seemed hopeless. But God... Right? Or it just seemed like it was just too late. The opportunity had passed, but God. Those are our best testimonies. All right, so that leads us into our second point. While we're waiting, we have to realize that it's God that does the promoting. And what I mean by that is this. It's God who will keep his promises on his own. He will use us, but we need to make sure that we are acting with his direction and on his direction when we're pursuing making those promises coming true. So to say it differently, uh, God helps those who help themselves is not in your Bible. It's not in your Bible. I found it a little bit in the Quran. I was researching, like, where did this come from? I found it in three world religions. But it's not in your Bible. God helps those that help themselves is not in your Bible. But it's really easy for us to go that way. It's easy for us to want to force things. But in the Scriptures, all we see is that either that doesn't work or it actually works against you. When you try to go somewhere and push something, even if it's, a, if it's towards a promise you feel God has given you, but He's not directing you to go towards it, it can make for some trouble. I mean, even look at Joseph when he said, mention me to Pharaoh and get me out of this prison. That didn't work for a couple years. You would think, you know, it's easy to put myself in that situation, but I would think the cupbearer would be like, hey, I, my life was, was preserved. The baker was executed. Pharaoh, you'll never believe what happened. And he would tell Pharaoh, and it would come to mind, but it didn't. He forgot for two full years. Joseph said, mention me. You would think he would. He didn't. It didn't work. And we have examples in the Scriptures even further of people who will take God's promise or take what they believe should happen and maybe force it a little bit. I think of Abraham and Sarah. Abraham, uh, the Lord told Abraham and Sarah that they'd have a child in their old age. And Abraham was 86. So I think it's fair to be like, man, this seems weird, right? We're very, very old. Are we going to have a child? The Lord says yes. But they take it into their, hands, their own hands a little bit. And uh, 
and Abraham has a child with Hagar, and, and a bunch of drama ensues. So, so think about it this way, the second point. And the first point we talked about taking the promise and putting it in our fist, right? The second point about helping things along where we're not supposed to help, think about opening your hand a little bit and saying, well, I think I'll help this thing scoot right along. I think without the Lord directing me, I'm still going to go ahead and push it a little bit myself. We're not supposed to do that. We know we're not supposed to do it. We know it doesn't have great <laughs> results. But we do know that God will step us along. God stepped Joseph along. Joseph was a gifted dream interpreter like Daniel. And it doesn't surprise me that the, the dreams of the cupbearer and the baker with the three branches and the three baskets, and then the dreams of Pharaoh with the seven reeds and the, or the seven heads of grain and the seven cows, those looked a lot like Joseph's dreams with the 11 stars and the 11 sheaves. It doesn't surprise me that the Lord was stepping Joseph along in those dream interpretations. And we can take comfort that the Lord is stepping us along. He is. Even if you're in this giant season of waiting, He is still setting up divine appointments. He's still working on us. He's still doing things. He was setting up divine appointments for Joseph and He's setting up divine appointments for us. If we really want to bring it home, what it means is that God will use us to partner with Him. He will step us along. He'll tell us to do things. But then He's going to take care of everything else. And what does everything mean? Everything. So that means your, your resume doesn't matter. Your circumstances don't matter. Your obstacles don't matter. Your family doesn't matter. The Lord is going to fulfill His promises. And where He wants to use you, He will. And we have to trust Him that He's going to take care of everything else. And I do mean everything. Alright, so... Point number one, while we're waiting, we have to hold fast to God's promises. Point two, while we're waiting, we have to realize that it's God that's going to do the promoting. And then point three, while we're waiting, we have to trust God's timing and His providence. So God's doing things in His timing. His timing is perfect. God was doing things in Joseph's life over that 13-year period from 17 to 30. I was thinking about this, you know, for the first 17 years of his life, Joseph was raised to believe that he was the best thing since sliced bread. I mean, his dad told him that. His dad showed him this ridiculous amount of favoritism. He was raised with kind of a warped thinking about his value in regards to other people. I'm not saying that was his fault. I'm just saying that was the way he was raised. And how many of you have met someone who's been raised with some warped thinking? How many of you know someone who maybe has, let's say, racist or sexist thinking? And how many of you know that that doesn't go away overnight? You don't just find out the truth and all of a sudden I'm better. I get it. Some of this stuff has been ingrained and some of this thing, these things take time. Take time. And, you know, Joseph spent as much time being probably improperly fluffed up by his earthly father he spent a lot of time there, and his heavenly father spent a lot of time humbling him as a slave or prisoner. The Lord was smoothing off some of those rough edges, and some of that takes time. Does that ring true to anybody in your life, that the Lord? It's a work that takes some time. And the Lord was doing that. I was also, as I was studying for this sermon, something hit me that had never hit me before. I know a lot of these stories, we read them, and, and there are insights, but certain things just like an epiphany, just jump out at you. And one thing that jumped out at me was 
God's timing was, was good everywhere, even regarding the famine. Even the famine was timed a certain way, and God's timing was perfect. Because the whole time I'm reading this story, I'm thinking, well, why didn't the cupbearer just say it then? Why another two years? Why did Joseph have to wait even longer? But it was God's timing. It was God's timing and God's timing on the famine. See, if the cupbearer had remembered Joseph, he would have said, hey, Pharaoh, there's a guy in prison. He told me these dreams. Pharaoh probably right then would have said, well, bring him out. I want to talk to him. And Joseph probably would have been presented with a couple of options. One would be he might be able to be set free. I don't know how that worked back then. But let's say even if he was set free, if he was set free, he'd probably be like, great, I'm going back to my family. And if he went back to his family, it'd be two years or nine years rather ahead of the actual famine, he would have had no way to provide for his family. Adam's going to share in, in future sermons about this story gets even more redemptive than just being in charge. There's a reconciliation that's going to take place with his family. That wouldn't have happened. The famine was timed. Joseph's life was timed against the famine. So let's, so, uh, or, I mean, it could have been worse. I mean, he could have been released to his family. What would his brothers probably do if Joseph is coming home to his family? They'd already told their dad that he was dead. They'd probably just kill him, right? I don't know, maybe that's dark, but they'd already told their dad he was dead. Nobody had seen him for years and years. His dad had no reason to believe that he was ever going to come back. So it might have been the end of Joseph's life. So that's the one scenario. Pharaoh sets him free. How about another scenario? Pharaoh lets Joseph then serve in his royal court as a dream interpreter. He's still a slave then. He becomes a slave. Uh, and, and we don't know what's going to happen there, but there's no freedom. There's no, we don't know if there's going to be reconciliation. We don't know what's going to happen at the point of the famine. So I don't know if that point hits home for you, but some things just jump out. You know, because of this, this timing against the famine, because God's timing was perfect, Joseph ended up being the right guy in the right place at the right time. Not only to be in charge of the, uh, of the doling out of the resources and storing during the, fam- the famine, but then uh, being second in charge of all of Egypt and, and further reconciling with his family. So, let me close with this. I'll try not to be too, too lengthy. I know there's training after this service, but I'd like to, to end with a, just a story that, where I can kind of explain those analogies in my own life, where we, we just saw this play out. So, I always wanted to get my lovely wife, Olivia, her dream van. Now, I'm a car guy, so the term dream van is an oxymoron. It just seems silly to me. But she really loved this van. And I really wanted to get it for her. So we borrowed money to do it. And Olivia and I agreed on a certain amount. It's going to be this amount and no more that we could borrow, that we could spend on this van. And I found the van on eBay. It was on sale from a dealer in Detroit. And I felt as soon as I came onto that auction, I felt like the Lord said, that's the one. You're going to get that van. And I'm a car buff, and I always wanted to take my kids to. Oh, that was weird. I always wanted to take my kids to the Detroit Auto Show, uh, the International Auto Show in Detroit. And I felt like the Lord said, even as I looked at this van, I felt like He said, "You're going to get that van. You're going to get it for the for that number, and you're going to be able to take your boys to the Detroit Auto Show. And it's all going to happen in one swoop. You'll go there, go to the auto show, get the van, and come home." I got excited. I was like, "Man, I really felt like I heard from the Lord." Olivia and I talked about it. We prayed about it. We were excited. 
You're like, yes, this is the Lord. I think the auction went down the next night, so we're, we're, we're all prayed up, and we've got that, we'll call it a promise, we've got what we believe the Lord has told us tightly in our fists. We've got it right here. The auction starts going, it's in a, it ends in an evening, the numbers start going up, and the numbers start going higher than we were able to pay. But I started to open my hand a little bit. I thought, oh, I'll help this thing along. And I start bidding more than I can even pay. And I think I went like maybe 1500 bucks more. But that was still a lot more because we were already at our max. We already had our max number. Then the auction goes down and I lose it. I lose the auction. So that night, I'm in bed and, and I'm just torn up. Because I'm sure this has happened to you. You're thinking, did I ever hear from God? Was that right at all? You're ready to throw the baby out with the bathwater. You're, you're like, I didn't hear him. Did I ever hear him? Do I know how to hear him? The whole thing, ready to toss it out. So, there's a redemptive part. The next morning, uh, the dealer sends a message through eBay. He says, hey, the, the, uh, the, the, dealer, uh, the, the bidder was a deadbeat bidder. He's not going to pay what he said he would pay. And I'll give it to you for your bid. But then Liv and I pray about it and we're like, well, we, our bid actually isn't what we can spend. So now we have to send an email that says, well, we can't really spend what we said we could spend. We can only pay this, this number. And then we wait. So now we've closed our hand back up. We're holding on to that promise, holding tightly, but we're waiting. And then we're waiting and then we're waiting and waiting. And then finally the dealer comes back and says, okay, I'll do it. And we went, and we got the van, I took my boys to the auto show, the whole thing happened just like I thought the Lord had told me it was going to happen, but only after it seemed like it was, it was gone. It was impossible, it was too late, but God. Amen? See, while we're waiting, while we're in these seasons of waiting, when we feel forgotten, when we're in the middle of a you'll never believe it horrible story, we have to remember that God's providence, His sovereignty, is at work in stories like that, in stories like Joseph's, in stories like ours. That's a different sermon. I'm not going to get into it, but it's worth a quick visit of Romans 8.28. It says, And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love Him, who have been called according to His purpose. Now that's a different sermon because those are loaded statements. Providence and sovereignty. They're loaded because they, they pose questions like, well, why does God let bad things happen? And so that's another sermon. Tell Adam you want that one. But it's worth a visit because it means God is working all things. All things. This means good things, bad things, all things. That's what God's working. So in Joseph's life, it's his slavery, his dreams, his brothers, his brother's jealousy, his father, his father's inappropriate favoritism, Potiphar, Potiphar's wife, Potiphar's wife's false accusations, the cupbearer whose life was restored, the baker whose life was ended, the famine, Pharaoh, Pharaoh's dreams, all things. And in your life, your wayward teenager, your difficult boss, your good friends, your new car, your car accident, your great marriage, your faithful husband, your bitter divorce, all things. There is nothing that God is not sovereign over. There's nothing that He's not working for the good of you who love Him and have been called according to His purpose. He's working it all. 
So maybe there are situations in your life when you're in a season of waiting. Maybe you're still holding on to that promise. Maybe you're in a place where you've decided to open your hand a little bit, see if you can help it along. Maybe you've been holding on to that promise so long your hand's cramping. You're waiting. You're tired of waiting. But let me just encourage you, God is working. He's at work. He's stepping you along. There are no setbacks, only set-ups. The Lord is at work. So if that's you, I want to call the worship team up, call the prayer team up. If that's you, here's what I want to do. I want to encourage you to come up. We're going to do one more worship song together. The prayer team's going to come up. Those are the people that are kind of trained to pray. There's nothing magic about it, but they can help you as you do business with God. And I'm going to ask you, if you're in a season of waiting and you're in any of those situations, I'd like to ask you to come forward and get prayer. I don't know how often this church comes forward and gets prayer. I've been in churches sometimes where they're like, oh, you know, that, that guy really needs Jesus and he's getting saved. And he's like the only guy up here bawling his eyes out or whatever. But we should always be praying for one another. Always. And so I encourage you, come up and get prayer. Do business with God today. And if you need prayer for anything, any situation, we believe in a God who heals. We believe in a God who speaks to us. And so I encourage you, get prayer. Come up and do business with the Lord. As we sing this last worship song, I'd love to pray with you as well. I'll just be standing down here. Let's meet with God. We'll do one last worship song, and then Andrew's going to close us.